What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I am so excited to introduce this next guest and for have you all to listen to this conversation. And I really hope you check out his book. Today, my guest is Brian Kaplan. All right. So we're going to be talking about his book, The Case Against Education. So I just for a long time, so a little backstory about maybe this will help. I went to high school, slacked off. I screwed up, blew off this scholarship they had here in Nevada, where you can get like pretty much a full ride to either of the two uh, state universities here, the one in Reno or the one here in Las Vegas. I screwed that up anyways. But, you know, throughout my life, I've just looked at college and I'm like, man, like how much is college even worth it? Cause I ended up going to college, like a junior college for a semester dropped out, but I saw so many people going to college just racking up debt. I saw people going to college who were for lack of better words, just kind of dumb, but getting degrees and all that. And then, you know, I noticed how getting a degree doesn't even guarantee like a good job and just so many issues. And I'm like, what? What is the purpose of college? And Brian and I discussed this a little bit in this conversation, but there are definitely, you know, different careers where you absolutely need a degree. For example, my lovely, beautiful girlfriend, she is currently pursuing her master's in social work, right? You need a degree. You need to get licensed. Very important. But another example is, you know, I have a really good friend, one of my best friends in the world. He got a degree in something like art history, and he is now uh, a, a pretty high up hotel manager in Florida for like the Disney hotel chains and, and stuff like that. So his degree had nothing to do with what he did. But anyways, I started to look at, you know, college and just say, no, the system's really messed up and it doesn't even necessarily, you know, prove intelligence. What is it doing? And that's when I stumbled across Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. And I'm like, this guy nailed it. So his entire book is about education, mainly college, being this kind of signaling, this social signaling that we do. And any of you who have been listening to my podcast or following my writing for longer than five minutes, you know that, that this is something that I'm huge on is the way we signal to others. So when I came across Brian's book, I'm like, oh my God, finally somebody is talking about this. They get it. And he is way smarter than I am. And he just puts it perfectly in this book. And I'm so glad I was able to talk with him. And I just wish we can get this message out there more because I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a father and my son's only 12. So he has a while until he goes to college, but understanding this aspect of, you know, college degrees as signaling, it's so, so, so important that we talk to young people about this, you know, just so they make better decisions about going to school. So Brian and I, we talk a lot about education, the education system, how we talk to kids about it, how they should be pursuing education, you know, the, the, the right and wrong ways to go about it so they can actually, you know, move forward in their life and they're not racking up student debt for no reason. You know what I mean? But anyways, I, I just cannot express how important I think his book is. So make sure you head down to the description, uh, follow Brian over on Twitter. He writes a lot, just, you know, his ideas and different things. He looks at the world through a very unique lens. And I, I love uh, reading his stuff, but also I'll link the book, The Case Against Education. And a quick heads up towards the end, towards the end of this fantastic conversation, the internet gets really shoddy and kind of weird. So I did some editing. It's still kind of funky, but anyways, I'm going to let you know, 
make sure you're following Brian because he is working on an upcoming project. Uh, it cut out a little bit as he was explaining it, but he has uh, a new book that he's working on. So yeah, make sure you're following him. But yeah, I just want to give you a heads up about that. So if you're new here, make sure you're uh, following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. That's linked down below. And make sure you are following and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Kaplan about his book, The Case Against Education. Hello, Brian. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, I I am so glad that we're we're gonna talk about your book, The Case Against Education. Um, and yeah, before before we dive into the book, and this topic gets me all riled up and stuff. Can you kind of for those who have yet to read the book or maybe not introduced to you, can you kind of explain what inspired the book and what's what's the book about? What's your theory around the book? Well, I would say what inspired the book was actually getting, gee, uh, how many years was it? 21 years of education and then becoming a professor. <laughs> so this is, out of all the things I've ever done, it is the most based upon my firsthand experience because I've been in school continuously since the age of five. And from the very beginning, it has seemed very odd to me. Most notably, why do we have to study this stuff? Why is this the curriculum and not something else? At the heart of the book is something that is called the signaling model of education. So the easiest story about why, why, why school is so odd is it's just another crummy government industry run for no good reason. But then there's something odd about it, namely that employers care. Employers care about how you did in school. So it's not just you waste your time and then the world says, hey, you waste your time. I hope that worked out for you. Rather, what the world says is, oh, you did really great in school. All right, let's open up a lot of wonderful career doors for you. Oh, you didn't do very well at all. Oh, well, you're going to be a garbage man then. Yeah. So that is what's odd. And the answer that I offer in the book is a big defense of what's called the signaling model of education. Intuitively, it's the idea that a lot of the reason why education pays in the job market is not that you'll actually learn useful job skills, but rather you get a stamp on your forehead that certifies you as being a grade A worker or a grade B worker or a grade C worker, right? Um, now, of course, I don't think this is all that's going on in school. You do learn some useful skills. You learn literacy in school, you use on mm -hmm. the job, you learn arithmetic, you use arithmetic. And I say most of what's going on is the signaling. Now, I did not originate the, originate the signaling model. So actually, another guy, Michael Spence, won a Nobel Prize for the theory. But I will say what's original about this book is that I totally believe it's true. Mm -hmm. Most of the other people have just been mathematical theorists who are doing it as a game yeah. and they publish some papers and, oh, wouldn't that be interesting? And then to me, it's like, no, 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 this explains the facts. This mm -hmm. is why everything has been so weird for so long. This is why I had 21 years of learning subjects where you, it's very hard to understand why they're even on the agenda, but there they are. Mm -hmm. And it explains why it is that we have this combination of learning useless stuff. We're often not learning useless stuff, just spending time in a chair and goes in one ear off the other. Combined with the labor market cares, employers care, will mm -hmm. hold against you if you didn't learn Latin. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Yeah, the reason why I I'm so glad I came across your book because I, I I feel like I can really I've been thinking about this stuff like since I was a kid and you know in recent years I've I've been looking at signaling just kind of all over the place, but for example like here here in Nevada they ended up doing something called like the Millennial Scholarship I think it was from the tobacco settlement where you get decent grades you get a scholarship <laughs> to one of the two one of the two call the two main colleges here in Nevada but anyways. Uh, I ended up just going to a junior college in California for like a semester, came back home, just started working. But anyways, living here in Las Vegas, uh, you could make a really good living just being like a front desk person at a hotel, right? Or being like, uh, you know, just someone kind of in there. But every time I looked at applications, they're asking for like a degree. And I'm like, there is literally no degree that would matter for this, right? And, I, and I'm thinking about like, hotel management. There's degrees in hotel management. Oh, yeah. My own school has one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, but like, you know, how, you know, how, how much can you learn that's going to separate these two people and stuff? And, and I looked at it, but one thing, one thing, and I, I don't mean to be crude towards people I grew up with, but I, I saw many of my uh, uh, pe peers who ended up going to school and I'm like, you're dumb as a rock, but you're getting through school. And it seems almost like, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're in the education field, seems like a lot of schooling is more about perseverance than it is about knowledge and intelligence. The price thing is that it's a combination and you could basically substitute intelligence, conscientiousness, and sheer conformity, and that they all work as a package. So yeah, if, you, if you're really strong in one of those, then the other two can be a bit weaker. But of course, if you want to excel and you want to get to the top, you want your PhD from MIT or Harvard, then you really need the trifecta. You've got to get the intelligence and the conscientiousness and the conformism. And that conformism actually plays a big part of my story because a lot of people who are smart and they're hardworking, but they don't want to submit. And schools have very little patience for people who will not submit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like I, I fall into that category and I'll ask you about uh, some things about me in a little bit. But but first, since we're early on, I want to address the elephant in the room because you work in academia. So, <laughs> so how does how does this work? Because your book, you have an entire book, The Case Against Education, and you're an educator. So how does that work? Well, I see myself as a whistleblower. If I was just some guy right blogging in his basement complaining about education then people say oh he's just some pathetic loser <laughs> who cares what he thinks so i mean a way the like to write this book and get any credibility you've got to be a professor mm. so you know like, and i will honestly say look i i there is something deeply corrupt in this system taxpayers are being really ripped off and if i don't tell them who will yeah, no, absolutely. And I, that's one of the reasons I, I respect the book so much. But, you know, something I was wondering, you know, since I'm reading it again, I was like, I, I'm curious, like, what what was the response from others in academia or even people who are involved in like government policy or, or anything like that? Like, you're, you're 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 decently well known. You know what I mean? So I assume a lot of people read this. So, like, how was that response? Well, let's see. So the people that actually know the most about the research I'm talking about, namely education economists, almost totally ignored it. But I got mm. a lot of reaction from academia more generally. I mean, probably the biggest group of people responding were humanities professors. And the main response they had was, all right, well, maybe he's right about all this, these facts and statistics and so on. But what he doesn't understand is the point of an education is to prepare people to get a job or to make money. It's to enrich their souls. 
Uh, now, what was striking about this is they said I never talked about it. If they looked at the table of contents, they would see I'm a little chapter on this. Yeah. So you know, my, my, my joke is, look, I can understand reviewing a book without reading it. Everybody does that. But to review a book without reading the table of contents, that's kind of negligent. Yeah. Right. So anyway, and what I did say in the book is I actually share these high-minded aspirations, but intentions are not results. And the fact that schools claim to be instilling love of Shakespeare and classical music and everything else doesn't mean they do. And when we look at the facts, we just see that schools are a gross failure and they inspire almost nothing. Like yeah. They do not turn. They, they, people enter Philistines, they leave Philistines. Now, in terms of other reactions, let's see. So yeah, I've gotten a lot, a lot more from just economists in general. Mm. So education economists who specialize in this area, my view is they're, they're quite dogmatic and insular and they really don't even want to talk to a larger audience. They just want to go and write articles for five other people to read. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you know, prove me wrong, education economists. Uh, economists more generally are a lot more curious about it. And uh, in a way, they're often surprised when I say that my view is so, contra so contrary to my experts. In terms of policymakers, the closest I ever came to actually really influencing policymakers, I did give a seminar for thoughtful people at the Department of Education, and Betsy DeVos showed up for the last 15 minutes. Mm. Uh, in terms of whether she understood me. I think she did in terms of whether she cared. Well, all I know is I went and looked at her Twitter account that day and she was tweeting a bunch of things that horrified me. So yeah, it sounds, <laughs> sounds normal. <laughs> yeah. So again, you'd say like to be a politician, you have to tweet terrible things. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, you know, like, all right, fine. Then don't be a politician or you know, really like, I mean, there's maybe, maybe you couldn't get that job without me, without saying terrible things. Once you've got it, now is the time to rip off the mask and be a whistleblower and say, Hey, this is a terrible system. And you're going to have to, you're going to fire me to make me stop telling it. Yeah. And, and even and that'll I'm, keep saying it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious too. So we kind of have like the, this reaction from different aspects of academia, but like, like I'm, I'm wondering when you sat down to write this book and, and you're like, Hey, I think people should know about this. Who did you have in mind as kind of the target reader? Were you hoping, were you hoping that institutions read this? Were you hoping like, uh, you know, uh, high school students or teachers, or, you know what I mean? Like people before they even yeah. get to college, like who, who'd you have in mind? Yeah, that's a great, great question. I've been teaching my 12 year old, the principles of good writing and the first principle I taught him is always mentally picture the person who is going to read your work, always mentally picture the person who's going to read your work. So when I write academic books. I start off by saying, all right, so I want experts in the field, the leading thinkers on earth to read it and say, he said something that I didn't already know. He made me think about it a different way. So that's step one is I want people whose research I'm talking about to feel not only accurately represented, but to feel like I have something to add that was not obvious to them. Uh, secondly, uh, I want to talk to graduate students in all sorts, in all sorts, you know, then again, of course, let me just throw on the first one. So not just people in my field, but experts on the topic. So, you know, economists sort of think that they are the only experts on education we're listening to, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's a bunch of other fields. Psychologists work in education, sociologists work in education. There's even a field called education that works in education. Mm -hmm. And I want people in all of these disciplines, research specialists to say he, he has read what we've done. He understands it and he's making me think something different. So that's step one. Step two is graduate students, people that are the future research, the future, but are, haven't figured out exactly what they're thinking yet. I'm trying to talk to them. Then I also always try to include what I think of as the good undergraduate or the good former undergraduate. So college students that would actually read a book and think about it. 
And then obviously that extends to journalists and people like that, public intellectuals, bloggers, people on social media. So for high school students, kind of like the very most advanced high school students, but in my mind, I have this range from good college student all the way up to people on the research frontier and everything in between. And I want all of them to feel like they can understand what I'm saying and they're learning something. So that's my imagined reader. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, I was, I wasn't somebody you were picturing. So who yeah, I, totally you are. So like yeah. you're doing social media. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you're definitely there. And you know, like, of course I've had a lot more luck with social media people than with education economists who again are sort of insular inbred. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever, slightly disparaging terms one cares to use. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes you, you get lucky. You I get love you guys, but yeah, <laughs> come on. Like for, for me, like, I don't know if it was just me feeding my confirmation bias, but you know, uh, like I said, like I, I dropped out at college and I, I work and I, I read and I try to learn. And like, I, I do have this, uh, you know, just this, this curiosity. I just love to learn about all sorts of different topics. Right. And, you know, but I've always looked at the world like, but we value education so much. And I'm like, does it, how much does it matter? Or is it just this, this type of signaling thing? But also like you, I'm the father of a 12 year old boy. Right. And, uh-huh. and, uh, you know, uh, so for a variety of reasons, right? Like student loans are out of control. <laughs> They're insanely mm-hmm. high. Right. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was kind of like, go to school, do good in high school, go to a good college, go to that good college, you'll get a good job, right? And then, I, you know, we kind of see that that doesn't even always work out, right? Because if we all go to Harvard, there's only so many jobs. And you talk a little bit about how that kind of dilutes the value of these degrees. But also, I I sat my, my, my son sat down and watched the docuseries with us about the college admission scandal that recently took place, right? But <laughs> You know, I think one of the reasons I asked you about, you know, high school kids, because your book, I have like kind of a list of books I want my son to read, maybe junior or senior year. And yours is one of them, right? Because I want him to make a good decision about going to school and having decent expectations. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, whenever people come to me with uh, asking for educational advice, I always start with where they want to end up. So I said, what's your career goal? Tell me that and I'll give you, my, I'll give you the advice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, so, I mean, you know, I've had people say, I want to get a PhD in economics. I'm like, why? Well, one girl say, well, I want to go back to China and run a textile factory. And like, hmm. well, then you come to the wrong place. No one here knows anything about running textile factories. If mm-hmm. you want that job, I suggest you go and work in a textile factory in China and work your way up. And she says, yeah, well, my uncle owns one. And I'm like, all right, perfect. Go work for your uncle. Yeah, but I don't like my uncle. <laughs> so, so since you don't like your uncle, the man who actually can prepare you for the job you want, you're going to come here and spend four years of life studying some unrelated stuff that people don't know a damn thing about textiles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wonder because like, I think, you know, uh, not to, not to, you know, uh, spares the work at all because you bring in so much, but like, sometimes I, I look around, I'm like, shouldn't this be somewhat obvious to people, right? Like just, like, shouldn't, like, just at a very basic level, like not being an economist, but like, oh, why the hell did I go to school so much, so long and pay so much money? Like, for example, one of my friends, like you talk about this in the book, he got like a, an art history degree, right? And his, he has a career. He lives in Florida. He like manages uh, hotels for Disney and stuff. Absolutely nothing to do with his degree, you know? So, so do like, why, why do you think people don't recognize how this is 
so, so much about signaling. Right. So first of all, non-intellectuals barely care about why they care about how, whether. Uh, so they said, look, here's a formula that works. I go and I study something and then I get a job. Like, I don't care how it works. So that's part of it. I will also say actually that when I address a general audience, usually they are totally on board with what I'm saying because it fits their experience until I get to the end where I start saying, Hey, let's slash education budgets. And that's where they panic. <laughs> and I could talk to them for 45 minutes saying that it's a giant waste of time. It doesn't really matter on the job. It isn't improving your productivity. And people are nodding and saying, yeah, yeah, totally. Of course. Yeah. You really need to, you really need to be a investor to know this. And then I say, okay, so it's waste, right? All right. And taxpayer money doesn't really help me. Right. Right. Okay. So how about cut off that money? And I'm like, no, you can't. No, it'd be terrible. People yeah. won't be prepared for their jobs. We've been slutty. But I just got you to admit for 45 minutes that that story is wrong. Yeah. So let's just ride out the last 15 minutes of the talk to the destination. And that's where I lose people. But out of all the controversial ideas that I have, and honestly, I only research controversial ideas. I don't write book number 932 about how the sky is blue. Yeah. I do. I, I work on orphan ideas, ideas that other people don't really care about that I think are worthwhile. But out of all of my controversial ideas, this is the only one I can go to a random group of, of normal Americans and get them nodding at agreement very quickly. Everything else, I've got to fight them to the nail. But this one, they said, look, it fits their experience. So it's hard to go against it. So why, why do you think that is? Why do you think the, uh, the, 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 the resistance comes at the slashing the budget? Is it just like, do you think it's like a fear of change? Like, do you think that's where it's coming from? Or what do you think it is? Do you have any theories? Like, I mean, I think a lot of it is that support for uh, sport for education in general, and especially public education is a key part of our secular religion. Have you ever tried to convince someone the religion is wrong? And then said, eh, maybe I'll just go hit my head against a wall for a while instead. It's more productive. Yeah. Right? So, you know, getting people to, to say, yeah, I want to cut it by spending on public education. You know, like it's really hard to get a person to say that sentence. And you would say, how about we cut it 0.1%? Is that okay? No, yeah. can't be cut at all. Not 0.1%, not 0.01%. None. Can't yeah. be cut at all. But yeah, you know, like it is a sacred value. And most people just like, you know, like it, it causes them pain. The, the sense of I'm going to put myself outside of normal society if I go and bite this bullet. So I'd yeah. rather just be illogical than on the foot by, you know, like, then like, then run away with consistency and sort of write myself out of normal society. Yeah. It, it, it it's really, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm glad that I'm not alone because uh, I'm sure you've, you've seen this as well, but when, uh, you know, for example, we have like the infrastructure budget that they're debating about and all these other things and so many conversations, right. They come back to like, we need more funding for education. We need more funding in these school systems and, and in uh, uh, school districts for like um, underprivileged kids and minorities and all these other things. And I'm like, okay, that's cool to an extent, but also a lot of that money would be wasted based on what you're arguing in this book, right? So, so when you see politicians talking about this, do you think it's kind of just like they're, they're, they're telling the people what intuitively feels all right about education? Yeah, I mean, the, the heart of being a politician is saying a bunch of things that sound good to normal people. True <laughs> or false doesn't matter as long as it is emotionally appealing. This is the heart of it. I mean, just to get an idea about how deeply ingrained the secular religion of support for education is, on the one hand, we do hear Republicans and conservatives talking about how terrible public education is, 
colleges and K-12, massive brainwashing. And yet, if you go and look at the share that supports spending more on education, it's still a sizable majority. Mm. And you say, like, what are you thinking? You Like, by day, you are said, or rather by night, you're denouncing the schools as hotbeds of, uh, of indoctrination. And by day, you're saying, we got to give them more money. <laughs> what gives? And, well, look, it may be that the priests are corrupt. We can't just stop giving money to the church. Yeah. We got to somehow reform it without taking away a dime of their money. Like, good luck with that. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about like, just like getting, getting started in, in school, like K through 12, right. And then up to college, but you have a whole like section where you talk about useless classes, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. you, you referenced like the, the high school you graduated from and you talked about like uh-huh. what <laughs> credits you need to graduate and you break it down about like, like, what are you going to use? most of these four, but they are mm-hmm. mandatory classes. So can you talk a little bit about like, what's, what's like the, you know, mandatory classes, like across the country and, and things like that. And like, are there any, or which ones let's do this, which ones do you find beneficial? And which ones are you like, let's, let's scrap them. Right. So I say the main things that are clearly beneficial are literacy and numeracy. Mm-hmm. Right? And those really are skills that people are going to use in a wide range of jobs. These are also the skills that. We know from tests, most people graduate mediocre or worse in. And if you look at the curriculum, it's not too hard to see why. It's because you don't spend enough time on the things you really need. Right? So like in my area, kids get about 43 minutes of math a day in public school. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, what are you doing the rest of the day? 43 minutes of math. And then the rest of the day, it's a bunch of other subjects that are just a joke. Right? So anyway, literacy and numeracy you know, like are, are very important. Um, and neglected really. And then in terms of subjects that are clearly ridiculous, so foreign language, right. And say, even if you would say, well, it's very useful if learned, but like, like anyway, in the book I go over, look, the data are quite clear, less than 1% of all Americans even claim to learn to speak a foreign language very well in school. It is a joke. And mm-hmm. it is a joke that takes two or three years of time to get to the punchline, mm-hmm. right? So. In the state of California, uh, all you know, like like both the UC and CSU systems require three years of foreign language. Now they don't require you to actually be able to order something from a menu at a restaurant, <laughs> and that's good because hardly any students can. Right, mm-hmm. so the teaching is that poor; it just wastes time. Let's see other areas. So obviously poetry. You don't need poetry, and yet schools hammer poetry in year after year, year mm-hmm. after year. Let's go and do Robert Frost again, people. All right, so you've got that. Let's see. Like so, and of course you've got history, so, you know, so, you know, social studies, like I'm an economist, but like, like it is not true that most people need to know this stuff. And the stuff that schools teach is so ridiculously watered down that there's really no point anyway. Mm-hmm. If you just go and say, look, it takes years of study to be able to have an intelligent opinion on a policy question. So just be agnostic and that, and that is the best thing to do. Don't, but don't belong to either party realize that they are making stuff up and they, and even the leaders really barely have any understanding what's going on mm-hmm. and just don't be part of the problem by joining one of these two bizarre cults. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably some people would object if that were top, that would be in, in about one minute would tell them more truth than what they get in 13 years of K-12 social studies. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was actually, uh, just this morning I was writing, I was writing a, a piece and, uh, I talked a little bit about like opportun- 
uh, opportunity costs, right? And that's what I think about when you talk about these useless classes, right? Like, mm-hmm. like when you were like 43 minutes in math and what are you doing the rest of the day? And we talk about these useless classes. It's like, yeah. how, like, where could that time be better spent? You know what I mean? And I look back, you mentioned this throughout the book, but so I'm 36 years old, right? And right now, just you mentioning some of those classes, I, I can't tell you what I learned. The only thing I learned was, and this being brought up a little bit more and more, is like, I got this, uh, you know, everything made the United States just look very, very good. And it's, that's what I remember, you know, and now that I'm learning more about like, uh, you know, some international conflict and history, like outside of school, I'm learning even more. So like you said, a lot of it's very watered down anyways. And, you know, as you mentioned too, with policies, like, takes years just to like learn all the intricacies of of certain things but to push back a little if i'm a if i'm a teacher and if i'm a spanish teacher i would ask like with spanish like french maybe i'm like eh right but spanish with the growing population of spanish speaking people and stuff like that i don't know if there's even any data but would you find that at least somewhat beneficial or or something that might stay if we had to prune it a little fluent in spanish has has at least some value mm-hmm. becoming one percent fluent does it has rarely no value and especially if it takes three years to get to one percent so i mean here's the main thing to keep in mind whenever you're assessing education don't assess their attentions don't say mm. hey they're trying to teach spanish so it's so what they're doing is important and because if people successfully learn spanish that would be good it's like forget all that Show me the graduates. Do they speak Spanish or not? And here I know the data and it's just it's simply not the case. So now my older sons were homeschooled and they do speak Spanish because I said, look, since we're homeschoolers, they're not going to believe us. If we just say we studied it, we got to actually do well on some standardized tests. Mm. And so I, so I, so I signed, I had signed them up for college classes and then I got them tutored and then I got the tutor. And mm. they put a lot of work into it. And we stayed a month in Spain and, you know, and, and so on. And they're good. Mm-hmm. All right. So you know, when they went to, you know, they just started at Vanderbilt university. So, you know, they went to what seemed to be the most advanced Spanish class they could, and they were just way too good for almost everybody. And then they immediately kicked them up to a higher level and they're still like way too good for almost everybody there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are kids at one of the top schools, top test scores. They probably did four years of Spanish and mm-hmm. then they've done several other years of college Spanish and they still really know anything. Yeah. <laughs> so just to realize, look, I mean, like, like, here's another way of putting it. So suppose that someone spends two weeks on something and they barely know anything yet. In that case, you could say, well, maybe they should try harder and put in a lot more effort and then maybe we'll get some be- a better result. Mm-hmm. Reasonable. All right. So if someone spends three years on something and it's almost not going to show for it. This is where I, I would say, look, <laughs> is this like a life or death thing they need to learn? If not, and they've got nothing out of three years, it was a mistake to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one, one thing I, I was curious about too, while reading, and maybe you can debunk my old high school math teacher, but you talk about, you know, the importance of math, right? Like we need math, like no matter what, like I have bills, I have my bank account. I'm an adult, you know, I need to, I need to know these things. My son and I cook, there's some fractions involved and stuff, but you kind of dive into like, you know, the stuff like trigonometry and some like Mm -hmm. calculus and everything like that. So one of my old math teachers, when we were, you know, like, we were like, why do we, why do we have to learn this? And he argued that it's not necessarily about the math but it's about training your brain for problem solving almost Mm -hmm. like doing puzzles and things like that Mm -hmm. so what 
what are your thoughts on that? Because that's what I tell my son. He's 12 and he's like, eh. I'm like, hey, you're learning problem solving. It's like when you play Zelda and they got the little puzzles and stuff. Same thing, but, you know, so gamified a little bit. What do you think about that? Right. So this is one of the most popular arguments that people give to justify their existence when they're teaching something that isn't very useful. Uh -oh. and so. <laughs> All right. And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You really have to go and look at the world. It's not something that you can answer with wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, there is actually a discipline that's been measuring this for 100 years. It's called educational psychology, sub-discipline transfer of learning. They've been working on this for a very long time. They desperately want to find transfer of learning. They desperately want to find learning how to learn, learning how to think, critical thinking. Mm. And after 100 years of research, they really are in despair because they, they say, look, it's really hard to find. There's very little sign that it happens. Really, the lesson is that learning is highly specific and that this idea of training the mind and building muscles is, is mostly just fantasy and wishful thinking, mm. right? So, Cordial, things like, oh, if you learn a foreign language, then you'll, then you'll be awesome at other things. It's just wrong, right? That's been tested and it's been tested many times. Now, I mean, the, the same goes for the, you know, like, like almost any, any, like, like anything what we call far transfer. Like you think that's, that that's doing more math will allow you to go at, for example, or like figure out how to resolve a travel problem or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, like these are just very different kinds of problems. So yeah, I like, you know, if you're studying math, we'll help you do physics. Right. But here's the thing. Most people who have studied physics and done well and, and done well at it, when you ask them real world applications of physics, they are still bad at it yeah. because they don't transfer. Right. So mm. there's this old joke that says, you know, objects in motion remain in motion in the textbook, but on the playground, they come to a stop because this is the way normal people think they don't go and apply abstract lessons to concrete problems unless you tell them mm. like basically to get people to apply school lessons in real life. You have to say. Use what you learned in the last class in order to analyze the movement of the volleyball. Mm -hmm. And you know what? In real life, there isn't any voice in the near shoulder telling you to apply your lessons. Right. Yeah. So now again, of course, there are some exceptional people that do apply what they learned in class to real life. Um, mm. You might say that I'm doing that a little honestly. You know, most of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm applying stuff that I learned outside of class <laughs> to my class. It's sort of the reverse of what people are hoping for. Yeah. But it's just so rare that it might as well not exist for purposes of ac the actual education system. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I'm going to, I just took a note. I'm going to look into some educational psychology because that yeah. sounds interesting because yeah, I, I think that's, you know, something that I'm, you know, I, I try to stay intellectually humble and realize, Hey, there's stuff I don't mm -hmm. even know about and people are studying this stuff, but you know, I, uh, Talking yeah, yeah. Like, so we just one other thing we're saying. So people love this idea that this uh, metaphor of building mental muscles through, say, doing Sudoku puzzles or whatever. <laughs> and here's the thing, right? So since COVID, I have been working out a lot. All right. And here's the amazing thing. If you work out your right arm, does your left arm get stronger? It mm. doesn't. But exercise is highly specific. And guess what else? If you exercise and get in really good shape and then you stop doing it for a couple months, you know what happens to you? You go back to normal. Mm. So... When people go and say that the brain is a muscle, I'm happy to say, yeah, and it works like other muscles. You get better at exactly what you train to do. And if you stop doing it, you go back to the way you were before. Mm -hmm. That's life. It is not this fantasy where you go and do Sudoku puzzles and then you become a master of the universe for life. It's just, it just doesn't work that way. That's total wishful thinking. Yeah. No, that, that. I think that's a great analogy because, you know, uh, with all the books I read, I, I'm constantly reading and I usually have a, a few books in rotation and, you know, different categories, like, you know, philosophy, some stuff on, you know, politics and social issues and, you know, psychology, but 
I keep it going because if I stop, like I forget that stuff. So yeah, I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can yep. see that just from my own anecdotal experience, but with, uh, with K through 12, like one thing I think about, like when you're talking about that in the book and some of the useless concepts and everything. So I'll never forget. I will never forget. Right. I was in high school and I forgot what class it was. We had it for like, I think it was an elective and it was only for a semester. But anyways, in that class, it was totally about preparing you for jobs. And they taught us how to fill out an application. Right. And Wait, what did, class was this? I, I don't even remember which class it was, yeah. but this it was so unusual that teachers would deign yeah. to do this. Yeah. It so was just, it was just kind of focused around that. And I learned yeah. how to fill out an Sounds application. Useful. Yeah. And we did uh, mock interviews and stuff. But anyways, now that I'm an adult, I, I also worked at a drug treatment center and I, we would help people, you know, once they graduated and look for work and stuff like that. And I've realized even not people in treatment, how many people don't know how to fill out an application. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, like I, I'm so fortunate to have had that class. Just very yeah. simple stuff, like like writing yeah. down entry level position or you know, whatever. Yeah. And how many uh, hours of poetry do those poor kids have to study and they and they don't have no practice filling out a job application? Yeah. yeah. And well, they, they taught us like uh just just conversational skills. Like one thing they taught me, right, was whenever you go in for an interview ask, ask them about stuff about the company, like puff them up about the business. You know what I mean? It was like, just a little yeah, bit of, of psychological stuff. And these are things yeah. that I'm just like, okay, well now I got to teach that to my son. But anyways, um, right now with, you know, misinformation spreading like crazy and all this other stuff, I talk with a lot of people and they wish that, you know, uh, uh, scientific literacy was taught, like, right. Like how, how do we, how, or, or, uh, even, uh, looking at, different news articles. How do we assess that? So they're talking about these things, but I'm curious for you, like if, if I gave you a school, Brian, you can make whatever curriculum, like what would you say are important things that are, (laughs) that kids should be learning K through 12? Right. So I actually was homeschooling all four of my kids during COVID. Mm. Uh, So I was homeschooling my older kids since seventh grade. Uh, During COVID, I was doing all four. Now my older sons are in college. I, I am homeschooling my younger son. So yeah, I've got a general view on this. So what I always tell my kids is there are two purposes to our school. So purpose number one is prepare you to be an independent adult. So I'm teaching you useful job skills that you're going to need to know in the future, at least reasonably like the need to know. And then two is I want you to have a good childhood. So those mm-hmm. are, those are my two goals. That's all. Oh, that's what I'm trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Right. So now within the framework of those two goals, a lot of it depends on the kid. So if you have a kid who really likes the construction industry, then I would say, all right, look, we can like, and you, and you don't like academics, look, all right, well, let's get you down to like basic reading and writing. Lately, I have teach you enough math so you can go and do percentage changes and fractions and things that you're going to do your job. And let's, then let's get you on a construction site and get you learning your job that you really want to do and that you're good at. Mm-hmm. Right? So for a kid like that, I would go ultra vocational as soon as I possibly could, uh, for a kid like my daughter is the only one of my kids that likes art. You know, I would be happy to have her do art in homeschool and like, I'd even hire a tutor for her and say, look, this is not like a good job option. Uh, it's unlikely to go anywhere, but if you're a kid, you like it. Great. So let's go and do some art. No problem. That's part of the goal of you know, having a good childhood. That's not part of trends. The kids learn, you know, like literacy, numeracy stuff. That I think every, you know, like, like every kid needs for kids that want to do, or at least you know, it is it is plausible they're going to do some job that requires quantitative skills that they need a lot more math than that. I do believe mm-hmm. in skipping the especially useless kinds of math. So I'm very anti-geometry and say like geometry really is not cumulative with other math. It's basically 
You just need to know enough for the SAT and that's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. Right? So a lot of people do a full year of geometry. I try to squeeze it to five weeks and then move on to advanced algebra. Let's see. So in that trigonometry, similarly, sorry, we just need to know just enough of this to, to squeeze by. We don't really need to know very much of this. It's not, it's not out very useful in, in the real world. Other stuff is more useful. Let's see. But then other than that, I like, I try to find out what the kids are interested in. If there's a kid that is interested in going to college, then I'll say, all right, well, got to do a foreign language. I'm not saying it's a good idea, the real, like for your career or anything, but I am the late, like, but I, or that you're going to use it, but I am saying that you got to do it. If you want to get a duty to college. So that's just something you really have to take care of in terms of other things that I would be inclined to do. So. I, I am an economist and I think that a lot of economics is great and important and lends insight. So mm-hmm. I definitely would put it on the sampler anyway. Oh yeah. That's something else that I would actually do for kids is you know, there is this philosophy that schools uh, usually preach, which is good in principle and just says, look, we want to expose kids to a lot of different things, but then they say it and then they don't do it. Their idea of exposing kids to a bunch of things is making them oh, do poetry for 13 years. I said, no, 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 that's not exposing kids to a bunch of different things. That is. Having an ossified list of five subjects that everyone yeah. everyone gets rammed down their throats. I really believe in exposing kids to different things. So sorry, let's do a couple of weeks on comic books. Let's do a couple of weeks on movies from the seventies. Mm-hmm. Let's go and learn about the history of seventeenth century Germany. Is that of any any interest to you? And let's let, let, let's not beat it to it beat it to death. Do it for a little while and see if there's any interest. And if there's not, all right, fine. Like I guess this isn't for you or for a younger kid. I'll say, all right, let's just try it again in a couple of years. You didn't like it now, but maybe you'll like, like it later. So mm-hmm. that's something else that I would do. Hmm. Okay. So I, I'm curious, like here, so something I think about like with my son, I, I'm, I've become this fan of like, uh, you know, trying to get him to just get into a habit, uh, to continuously work that muscle of how to think. Right. And mm-hmm. for me, philosophy helped me out a lot with that, like learning about mm-hmm. like Socratic questioning and everything like that, mm-hmm. uh, just epistemology, mm-hmm. like how do I know what I know? You know what I mean? But it, yeah. it also helps foster kind of like, a, you know, a healthy skepticism and everything. So I, I'm curious, like, do you, do you see that as like a valuable skill? Because I was talking with somebody the other day and they were not introduced to philosophy and that kind of type of thinking until college and they had to hunt it out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, do you think, yeah. you know, that's a life skill that, that kids need, especially with so much information coming at them and all this other stuff. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think they need it. And that's fortunate because most people have no interest in philosophy and never will. You cannot reach <laughs> them with it. Yeah. All right. So there's no words you ever could have said to my dad to make him interested in philosophy. That's just <laughs> a fact. Right. And see, most people are that way, just pours into tears. And it's not because it's presented poorly, though it often is. It's because they're intrinsically totally disinterested in this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So for a certain kind of person, it's great. I mean, I would go further and would go further and say, though, like, if we take a look at philosophy wrestlers, and I know it a lot, I see no sign that most of them are especially good general reasoners. Most of them, they know, they know a few research literatures they work in and on almost any other topic, they just go and repeat totally conventional views. So mm. if even most philosophy PhDs have not actually internalized a habit of critical thinking or mm. a philosophical approach or a, 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 a well, a well-reasoned skepticism, mm-hmm. then I just don't think it's realistic to think most people are going to be like this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hopefully your kid's different. So, you know, like he's, yeah. he's got your genes, he's got half your genes. So <laughs> maybe you'll like it too. 
Yeah, yeah. Mainly, it's like he'll ask me questions. Like I don't, I don't know if you do this in your kids, but he'll ask me stuff, and I'll, I'll hit him with a question, right? Like, oh, yeah. where, what do you, what do you think you should do in this situation and mm-hmm. stuff? And I try to let him fail a little and figure things out. You know what I mean? Just to, just to get, get his, his wheels turning a little bit. But, but yeah, uh, no, I definitely, I definitely do see what you're saying. And you and know, my, my younger son loves hypotheticals, <laughs> and the, the, you know, his hypotheticals will like. You know, usually they're, they're like, what would you do if a cow fell from the sky? Something like that. Or, you know, but then, but then they'll also do ones that would make most philosophers puzzles as dad, if there were a cereal that tasted super great and it would help, and it would help you lose weight and it was free when you eat it. Yes. The point of my medical is to make it hard. You know what have fun about if you could like save a person at no cost for yourself and there was a nice person and you liked them, would you do it? So, yes. Yeah, that, that's great. I, li- so I like. I tried to tell him like, a better hypothetical is one that actually is a challenge. But on the other hand, like, you know, like it is hypothetical reasoning, so it's a start. Yeah. So, so moving on from K through twelve to college, and I kind of want to, I kind of want to talk about the the job aspect of it, right? Because that's that's kind of the the motion we go through: go to college, get a good job, and and all that kind of stuff. So you you break this down in the book, but for anybody listening, right? Like, can you kind of explain your, your, your theory that, that involves signaling? Why do jobs care about your diploma? What does that, what does that show? What does that do? Right. So what I say is it shows that you've got a good package of intelligence, conscientiousness, and conformity, all of which help you to do well in school and are also highly valuable on the job. Right. So intelligence, pretty obvious. You want people that are able to cope with somewhat novel situations, conscientiousness. You want people that are motivated, care about doing a good job, care about being on time, so on. And then conformity, you want people that will do what they're told. Right. So, and, and will accept their position in a status hierarchy at follow orders. Right. And also not weird other people out, including the customers. So yeah. all of these things I say are signaled by educational success are unsurprisingly valued by employers. And now just understand about why it is so hard to break out of this equilibrium. And the same in a world where education is so accessible, what do you think about a person that didn't do it? Yeah. Right. And yes, well, like it's like, like, and again, especially if the person seems very smart, like for a smart person, it's so easy to get a degree. So why did this person? And it could be that there was a series of unfortunate events, which no way reflects upon their, their employability, but more likely. They've got the, they're lazy or defiant, right? And these are things that you do not wish to have in an employee. Yeah. So, so that's, that's where, that's, that's where I want to ask your personal advice, Brian, for a guy mm-hmm. like me, right? College dropout, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you know, now like I, so I, I, I had a drug addiction until 2012. I'm sober. I've been working and I, I spend a lot of time just learning. I love to learn. I didn't find my passion for learning until my early thirties. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. so far I have read about 290 books this year. You know what I mean? Right. But on paper, I have a high school degree. You know, I have a decent work history that signals a little, you know what I yeah. mean? So yeah. what with, with the current signaling, uh, aspect of all this stuff, like what, what's a guy like me to do, right? Look, the idea pops in, like go back to school, do that conformity and show the, the diploma, but what are your thoughts? Right. So that's not a bad idea. At your age, it's not too late. 
And again, probably wouldn't even be that bad for you. So that, that's one option. So another option is to go and look at special occupations that are less credentialist. Mm. So most famously, computer programming is at least less credentialist. There are actually a number of alternate ways of just proving that you have skills. My understanding is that even there, there's basically a glass ceiling for the self-taught programmer and you really do need the degree if you want to be very successful, but nevertheless, it can still be a big step up. Let's mm -hmm. see. And then other options. Um, now these are hard, but uh, might be easier than getting four years of school. And this is and to favorably impress employers in a social context. Yeah. Right. And get the end. So especially people who are actually running businesses, less bureaucratic businesses mm -hmm. that you may be able to get an opportunity through the back door by very favorably impressing someone who is an employer in a social setting, mm -hmm. right? As to how you can do that, uh, it's tough. Of course, uh, these opportunities are quite limited, but yeah. you seem to be very outgoing. So I think you've got an edge there, right? So there's that. You know, like, I mean, the, the, you know, like the cold email, of course, normally is a total failure, but there are a number of ways that you can dramatically improve your odds of getting a favorite response to cold email. And one of the main ones is, actually learn a lot about the person that you're talking to and credibly demonstrate that you're interested in what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, so it's, we like, if you want to get any professor right back to you, don't just say, Hey, you're a professor of this, right? I got a question. All right. On the other hand, if you go to Google scholar, find out what their work is, read some mm -hmm. of their work, and then say, I have a question about your 2012 article and here, and then it actually shows a reflection of a complex understanding material. Then mm -hmm. I think you are very likely to get a response because the number of such emails that even famous professors get five a year if they're lucky. Like they're not getting cold emails from strangers who actually care about their work and have and can credibly show that they appreciate it. So, mm -hmm. and then, yeah, like in, in business, similarly, if you can actually find some way of showing that you understand what a person has accomplished that is, that it, that is worth, that is noteworthy and connect with them that way, that is a, well, a back door to getting a good job. Again, but yeah, what I always tell people is if you're super transparent, it will work. Really what you want mm -hmm. to do is let someone get to know you and then over the course of a year or two. And then after that, then, then you can say, huh, well, you know, like, like we've had like 10 lunches together. You're like, you know, like, like, you know, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a career switch. So there's that. And by the way, you another thing to do. Mm -hmm. And this, I've got good news. This is exactly the best time that you're uh, probably the best time in your life. This is ever going to be when the labor market is very tight, when yeah. firms are having trouble finding workers for jobs. Mm -hmm. This is where you have your best opportunity to get someone to bend the rules for you. Yeah. You're never going to get a better time than now to go and get hired for a job that normally requires a credential that you don't have. Yeah. So that, strike while the iron is hot. Do it now. This is like, like any, like every, any other time is going to be worse. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because that's kind of, that's kind of what, uh, I've been doing as you were talking to, like, like, uh, just, you know, a little bit about me, like that's, that's how I've succeeded. I, for example, when I was working at the drug treatment center, I had no, I had no degrees or anything like that. Fortunately, the only thing I needed was, you know, sobriety, but I worked my way up and I was able to signal my work through just my hard work, right? And my results. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point mm -hmm. and I actually felt bad because I started making more money than people with degrees. You know what I mean? So when I talk to people- Oh and yeah, I, like, like it breaks your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like, you're still, you still have, I get what you're saying. But I'm like, 
I, I think about how much world's smallest that. violin just came yeah. out. <laughs> but the, the amount that people are paying Good for you, man. Good for yeah. you. Screw <laughs> those people. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell people that though. Like, hey, hey, you can save tens of thousands yeah, no, of dollars. Don't tell them. Just think. Yeah, you know, just they have a like. You know, hold your head up high. Say, hey, like I'm good myself to performance. I like. I like how you think, Brian. Real but, way. So, so let me ask you this: When my, me as a stranger reached out to you and enjoyed your work and stuff like that, because somebody said that's why I get so many professors on my podcast and authors and stuff because I show an interest in their work, which they don't always get yeah. in in school. So <laughs> don't always, almost never. Really, is it rare that you have students yeah, that are like, hey, I really like? I, I think probably half of all professors spend their entire careers without receiving a single. Like an email from a non-student who is outside of academia saying, I, I, I read your work and I, have an, and I have a thoughtful question about it. I think most people have zero such emails for their entire career. Really? That is. Yes. That's, that's interesting. Well, look, what, get... look, if you look at their CVs, there's no mystery why. They work on really boring stuff. And, I mean, I don't think even most of them even care about it. It's just a, a job. They're punching a clock. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, part of my part of my don't really punch clocks. Part of my goal with this podcast is to get people interested in this stuff because for example your your book like with all the money that we're wasting in tax money uh our own money and racking up student debt like people should be talking about this stuff but you know one of one of my last questions for you i'm curious where you think some of the solutions are um like especially with employers right because i think employers would benefit from knowing this, it, but it seems like it's more efficient to just flip through a hundred applications and see who's been to school. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because like you said, it yeah. shows that package, but like, I don't know, what are some, some solutions? Does it come from employers? Does it come from policy? Does it come from me as a parent, like us? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do not think employers are making a mistake. I think that mm. given how heavily subsidized the status, the status quo education system is, it really is the simplest, most straightforward, cheapest way for them to make at least rough cuts well, on, who to, on who to interview, who to hire. So yeah, I think that this, you know, the system is crummy, but uh, and perhaps there'll be, uh, there'll be innovations, but I think most employers are not doing anything that is really incorrect right now. Mm. I mean, like, yeah, I do, there probably is some room for doing more standardized tests. Thing, and there is a myth that that's illegal and actually it's generally totally you can get away with it just go ahead and do it and odds that anyone even calls you on it's very low so that is a an alternative although important to remember that if you wind up hiring people with very high IQs but poor educational performance you're probably going to get the, the misfits you're probably going to get the lazy people and the defiant people so yeah. watch out See, so mostly I do focus in terms of policy. And I say, look, the number one thing that we got to do is cut, cut spending, austerity, right? We are throwing a pile of money at the education system. And the main result is credential inflation. That you need more and more degrees to get the same jobs that your parents and grandparents got with less. Yeah. Right. So that is the number one thing that I push educational austerity. That is why the book is called the case against education. It's because that is what I am saying. I think the government needs to cut spending on education and cut it by a lot. And that's a good idea. And it follows from the logic of what I'm saying. Uh, also in policy, I do think that vocational education is undervalued. So there's that. In terms of other mm -hmm. more minor reforms, say, you know, for especially K through K6 elementary school, obviously a lot of what they're providing is daycare. And once you accept that and say, that's not a really useful service, 
yeah. that I'm very inclined to say, all right, well, how about we just do literacy, numeracy and play and just let kids and let kids have a childhood. Yeah. Okay. We, their parents need to be in the school for eight or 10 to 10 hours a day so they can do their jobs, but it doesn't mean the kids have to be constantly bombarded with boredom. Why not spend for kindergartners do two hours of reading, reading, writing, and math, and then let them play the rest of the day. Why mm. not? Right. Yeah. So, and so anyway, so there's, there's that, I mean, in terms of you know, people like you and people who, like, who actually care about ideas, care about learning or in terms of, of you know, especially college students, you know, what I tell people is there is no college in America so bad that it does not contain at least a few awesome faculty members. Mm. And your job is to find them and you know, seek them out. And especially at worst schools, these people will be demoralized. They'll be bored. They'll be lonely. They need a friend and you can be that friend. And if they find you and you find them, it will, it will bring great joy to both of you. Like you'll yeah. find the person at your community college who teaches English, who really loves literature and don't go and say, what could I do to get a better grade? But just say, Hey, I, I, I looked at your work. It seems really interesting. Do you recommend some books? I, mean, I like books, right? That yeah. kind of thing. So, you know, like whenever, whenever students are complaining about the low quality of their educational experience, I say, well, have you shopped around? Have you tried <laughs> to find who are the best professors? Do you, do you, or are you, will you, do you ask professors to sit to informally attend classes you are enrolled for to because you're curious? Do you mm -hmm. introduce yourself to professors? All of these things are completely doable and most professors will be very flattered if you do them. And mm -hmm. if you say that you're not getting a good experience, but you won't take initiative, I'll say, well, who, who else do you have to blame for it but yourself? Take initiative, people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, this isn't something I, I, you know, I, I boast uh, about publicly, but since we're on that topic, like I, I've seen what you're talking about, right? Like, uh, you know, a lot of authors when they're doing like their, their rounds for book launches and stuff, they're popping on podcasts or doing stuff, but they, they've, you know, they've told me that a lot of people don't actually read the book. Right. So it's very, mm -hmm. you know, they, they don't know what it's about. They don't know what the, you know, the person's arguing. So they do get flattered and they like knowing that people are interested in, and I think a lot of people are interested, but they don't realize that they are, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, well, it's a big planet. We got almost 8 billion people. So yeah. <laughs> if one in a million people is interested, that's 8,000 people. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it is just humbling to go and compare the YouTube videos that say I get to what Kim Kardashian gets. Mm. See, all right. Look, I'm never going to beat this seemingly extremely ignorant and superficial woman. Yeah, yeah <laughs> she's beating me by by a factor of a hundred thousand. So what can I say? All right. I mean, I can appreciate that anyone listens to me, and that's what I do. But <laughs> if I spend a lot of time really comparing myself to the most successful. With the other public thinkers in the world in some sense and say, wow, I'm being beaten by people that I would fail in my, in my college classes. So what does that say about the world? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Brian, thank you so much, uh, for, for, yeah, taking the time to chat with me about this and it's my and, yeah, pleasure. Totally. Well, I'm, I'm curious. The pleasure is mine, Chris. <laughs> before, before letting you go, uh, cause I need some more books, but I know you write and stuff. Can you tell people where they could find you? and the stuff that you're currently writing and stuff yes. like that. And let me know, are you working on any like books or is it just kind of blogging and stuff like that when you, when you want to stir up some trouble? Right. Yeah. So you can get all of my books on Amazon. That's the cheapest, easiest way to do it. So there's the book we've been talking about the case against education. I have two other books of the myth of the rational voter and selfish reasons to have more kids. And I also have a New York times bestselling graphic novel nonfiction called open borders, the science and ethics of immigration. 
What? So, I and what? I am right now writing another nonfiction graphic novel on housing deregulation called Bill Baby Bill, the science and ethics of housing. I'm working on a, another academic book called Poverty Who to Blame. And then furthermore, I'm also simultaneously preparing eight new books, which are collections of my very best blog posts organized by theme. So basically over the next two years, there's going to be eight new books that will be released. All these will all be uh, sold directly through Amazon. Um, So I'm uh, curious to go. I've had, I've had some friends with very good experiences with just selling things directly on Amazon. And I'm going to try my hand with eight new books. Uh, So hopefully I can get your readers to buy all 10 of the things that I'm working on. But uh, of course, but anyway, or, you know, and of course, uh, even better by the things that are exist, but you can do that right now. Next 10 seconds, they can be on your way from Amazon. So <laughs> yeah. my last name is, is Kaplan, C-A-P-L-A-N. And last time I checked, I am Google's number one hit for C-A-P-L-A-N. So do that nice. and you'll find everything about me. Beautiful. I'll link all that stuff below. And by the way, before I let you go, I just want to say, Every, every author, I'm like, Hey, what you working on and stuff? And it's, and you know, it's a, sometimes it's like something to the worst. And like, you just hit me like, we're about to get flooded with new Brian Kaplan stuff. So I'm excited. So, so yeah, I get, I, I'm looking forward to it and you're going to be tweeting about all the stuff when it drops, right? Yeah, you got, you got it. You got to put, you got to publicize yourself. This is another thing about almost no professors do. Most mm-hmm. professors, then they're done. They, they don't make the slightest effort to sell, to sell copies. Absolutely. So, so yeah, well, like, you, you, you can just shake them and say, what's wrong with you? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Again, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, and yeah, so Brian, by the way, so you're going to self-publish these upcoming books, but the, but the eight collections of blog posts, I am just going to self-publish those. I think it's, I think it's at an ideal media, uh, you know, uh, your, an ideal platform for doing something like this, where it's just a bunch of essays and it wouldn't really make sense to think about refereeing them or anything. And, you know, like I, I think these books are a little bit more fan service where I'm going to try to heavily market them to people that already like me and know about me, although I'm happy to have new readers too, but I just want to try this out. And you know, this makes it a lot easier to, to do it this way. Cause I don't have to deal with, with editors for something where I think that it, it's the, the work really stands on its own merits at this point. So yeah, Brian, thank you again so much. And I'm looking forward to your work and we'll be talking again soon. Outstanding. It is for autodidact activities. They are most admirable. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian and I hope you caught that part at the end. I warned you, I warned you that it got a little, it got a little funky with the internet. But anyways, Brian is writing, he's self-publishing a collection of his writings. And I actually, I don't know, but maybe I'll give credit to Brian. But recently I, I released those two books uh, that are free and they're a collection of my writings. Well, I'm like, hey, maybe that's a good idea. So maybe Brian planted that seed because we actually recorded this episode a while back. But anyways, I cannot wait for Brian to release this. And like I said, I, I do think that the conversations we're having around education is so so, so important, especially with how much money we put into education, how much importance we put into education, all these things, but nobody's really looking at the results, right? Is this net positive and things like that? And that's why you get someone like Brian, like that's one thing I love about economists is that they look at these things like such a rational way. And I don't think there's a conversation people like to have, but it's a conversation that we need to have. So I hope you enjoyed this chat with Brian. Make sure you're following him and get a copy of The Case Against Education and stay tuned for his upcoming books. All right. But 
Again, if you're new here, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. That way you don't miss any new episodes. I write. I've been writing a ton. I have a free sub stack. So I, I usually write about, you know, current topics or just ideas that I'm playing around with and stuff like that. But I also write over on my blogs. I do book reviews and, you know, uh, some different tips for authors as well uh, for how to like market and promote their books. Brian and I talked about that just briefly towards the end. Uh, but yeah, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter and make sure you are following and subscribe to the podcast. And if you really want to help out, share these episodes. If you like this episode, if you're like, this is Brian guy, he's saying some real stuff. Share this episode or any other episode you like. If you got two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. Sharing and rating the podcast helps out a lot to get the word out there about the podcast. The algorithms love that stuff. And some other ways you can support the podcast, uh, head over to TheRewiredSoul.com. I've self-published some books on mental health, addiction recovery, stuff like that. And there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Therapy and mental health is a huge part of my life. I have personally used BetterHelp. And if you want like affordable online therapy and you're working with a licensed therapist, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp. It's affordable. And when you sign up using my link, a little bit comes back to help support the podcast as well. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Brian. Make sure you're following him. Grab a copy of his book. And for all of you, have an amazing rest of your day. And I will have a bonus episode for you coming up on Sunday with a somewhat controversial person, but it was such a fantastic conversation. And I was able to ask him some questions uh, that I've been curious about um, when it comes to kind of uh, your real personality versus your online personality. But anyways, uh, stay tuned for that. That episode will be up on Sunday. All right. So have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time.